0: when i'm in the spotlight and some people seem to think that i've changed
1: This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to Mississippi Girl, sung by Faith Hill. It's her life story, the story of a small town girl gone big. It was released in May of 2005 and reached the number one position on the U.S. Hot Country charts. Faith is one of the top selling and most awarded female artists of all time, and we're talking about her and telling her story because she was born on this day in history in 1967. She's from Star, Mississippi just 20 miles outside of Jackson. Her talent was evident early in her life, and she performed for the first time at a 4-H luncheon when she was just 7 years old. She loved to sing and decided to chase her dream, so when she was 19, she dropped out of school and she moved to Nashville. Here is young Faith Hill at age 26 talking about what happened when she first moved there.
0: My, the very first job I had when I moved to Nashville, I sold T-shirts at Fanfare. Well, I had been here for four months, and I had not found a job, and I was getting very scared that I was going to have to move back home. So I was looking at the Sunday paper one day, and, and I saw this dad sell T-shirts for a week. During Fanfare, I thought, "Great, you know, a week's worth of work. I definitely need that." So I went and applied for the job, and I just I sold T-shirts for a vendor that it was just a Nashville vendor, Music City USA T-shirts like that. That was my first taste of Fanfare, and I really didn't know what it was before I, you know, I started working there. But when I left that week, I was very much aware of what Fanfare was and how important it is. I guess after a few weeks, after I worked at Fanfare, I landed a job as receptionist for Gary Morse. That was really exciting. I was there for about three and a half years.
1: Faith soon began to realize that Nashville didn't work the way she thought.
0: In Nashville, what happens is, for, for me anyway, when when I went around applying for jobs, the very first question would be, what are your real intentions here? What did you come here to do? You know, are you here to be a musician or singer or in the entertainment business and I'd say, yeah, yes I am. You got a band I can be in or do you know somebody you can introduce me to? And that was not the right thing to say. People are very supportive in this town, but there are some too that that run a business. So when I went to Gary's office, I was getting pretty scared. Yeah, I'm sorry, they had turned me down and thought, well, some, I'm not saying something right. You know, I thought I was dressing up all right <laughs> and being friendly and everything, but something is not right. So when I went to Gary's office, I don't know where this came from. I think God was really watching over me. I sat there and I said, no, I'm not here to be a singer. You know, I need a job. And so they hired me. I thought, what have I done? You know, I yes, I'm here to, to break into the business. And I have just blown that chance. What happened was I was, I guess you could say, a closet singer for about a year and a half. During that time, I, mean, I was sneaking around trying to get into the whole Nashville scene, trying to figure out, the right places to be, meeting songwriters and going to the Bluebird in Douglas Corner and all those places. I was just really scared that if I let them know what my real intentions were, that I was going to lose my job. But it didn't turn out that way. I was being way too hard on myself. Gary heard me do a demo and came upstairs one day, and I was sitting upstairs at my desk. He said, young lady, he said, you need to get out from behind this desk and get busy on this career. You definitely do not need to be sitting behind this desk. And that was the kick in the butt that I needed. Then I was out of the closet and I wasn't scared anymore. (laughs) And I didn't lose my job. I mean, he was very supportive.
1: How and when was it that she was discovered?
0: Well, I was discovered the exact date. You know, Lord, I don't even remember that because a lot of it, there was a, a long time span in between the time that I was discovered and the time that I was signed. I was discovered singing harmonies for Gary Burr at the Bluebird Cafe about two and a half years ago. I was discovered by Martha Sharp. She just happened to be in the audience and she heard me singing. And I saw her a few months later at a music row function and and that's how we hooked up. Got her a tape and here I am now. (laughs) The preparation for a first album coming out is enormous. Um, There's just a lot of things. And I think the most important thing is timing of everything and getting the right team together. I changed producers during that time. It just, just It takes a lot of time, finding the right songs. I mean, at first I was signed to Warner Brothers as a development artist, which mean I did a few demos for them. Just they're trying to get the right producer with me and trying to get the whole thing set up just right. And that took time. I mean, I got with a really good manager, Gary Borman, who manages Dwight, Yoakam, got hooked up with him. And then Scott Hendricks, who produces Brooks and Dunn and produced the, the first few Alan Jackson records. And he produces Larry. And Aaron Tippin's latest, Leroy Parnell, Steve Warner, all those good looking men he produces, and he needed a female. <laughs> and I knew one. I said, Have I got the female for you, Scott? No, but I'm his first female artist. It was just waiting to get that right team set up and I, boy, I'm glad we did because I'm really happy with everything we have.
1: Her young self thought that stars happened overnight, but obviously she learned that wasn't the case.
0: You know, sitting back home in Star Mississippi, I thought well, I'm gonna walk myself right up to Nashville. And I'm gonna take that that town by storm and by in a month I'm gonna have a record out and be on TV and let me tell you something folks, it don't work that way. There's a lot to do and and I'm glad though I mean during that time, patience was never one of my strongest traits. God knew that, and now my life has changed. I'm a very patient person because it takes a lot of time to get it out and there are no overnight successes i mean it's it's tough and and people, everybody that you see and that you hear on the radio. Right now, every one of them has worked just a bit as hard as someone else. I mean, I really believe that. It's tough. You spend your whole life getting to this point to make a record. Even since I've been in town for almost seven years now, and I mean, during that seven-year period, definitely I have been working very hard. But to get to that point, you know, back home in Mississippi, I was working just as hard, developing myself as an artist. And a lot of people think... Well, after I get my record contract, and after I get my record out, well, I've got it made. I don't have to do anything. Now the hardest part's over with. Well, that's another that's another bunch of bull. <laughs> you got to promote it, which is good. You know, shoot, yeah, I want to get out and promote this record because I'm proud of it. And you got to promote it, and, and there's a lot of things that you need to do.
1: Faith Hill, you got to love her attitude and her spirit. There's a young woman there with a real mature voice. More on Faith Hill's life story. Born on this day in history in 1967.
0: Cause a Mississippi girl don't change her ways, just cause everybody knows her name. Ain't big headed from a little bit of fame. I've been me is all.
1: This is Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories, and today on this day in history, back in 1967, Faith Hill was born in Starr, Mississippi, and that's why we're talking about her today. And you just heard some clips of a very young Faith Hill, and my goodness, you could hear it then. The star power, the, the attitude, the personality just ripping through the microphone and through the speakers, and you add to that this amazing voice. These drop-dead beautiful looks. And, you know, it's almost like a Whitney Houston for country. That's what Faith Hill was. Except she didn't squander the talent, and there was never a drug problem. And, by the way, we spent quite some time on Whitney Houston and her life and so many other artists who squander or pray to depression. Um, no such story with Faith Hill. And here she shares one of her biggest influences in her life,
0: Reba McIntyre, I guess you could say she had something to do with my career because she was one of my biggest influences growing up. As far as as that way is concerned, she was, I mean, I wanted to be Reba McIntyre. There was a point in my life that I wanted to be Reba McIntyre. And when I started working for her, the thing that she helped me with the most was the fact that I was there and getting to see what it was really like. She is a professional, no doubt, and she, the way she handles her fans, the way she handles her whole career, and the choices that she makes, it was something to see. I mean, that, in that way, yes, she definitely helped me out a lot, and she supported the fact that I wanted to do the same thing she was doing. The advice that she gave me is just to have fun with it, girl, and just right here, to keep it from your heart. It comes from your heart. That's where it all starts from, and just to be thankful.
1: And that's great advice, by the way, for any artist, for any human being, basically. Be thankful, have fun, and keep it close to your heart. Faith shares more about herself and how she prepares for her shows.
0: If I was filling out an application right now, this very moment, I'm very, very, very excited. Excited person. I mean, I'm just bouncing off the walls excited. (laughs) I mean, I'm living out a dream of mine come true. I'm a very normal, real person. The thing that I say and that I always will do is just I'll have fun. Have the best time I can possibly have. I play the piano and the guitar to write on. I don't play as in while I'm performing only because I'm just not very good. (laughs) Just plain and simple, honest. I mean, you know, I get real flustered. But no, I write on the instrument. I may play a little bit in the show, the guitar, because it is fun. But that's something I'm going to work on when I'm on the road. Most of the time, I just wing it. I mean, that's the honest-to-God truth. I'll get up there and I'll, say, and I'll have a rehearsal with the band and make sure everybody knows what's going on as far as the songs and when they're supposed to come in. Sometimes it's been where I've had a set list, and I usually have a set list, definitely. I never have said, okay, at this point, in between this particular song and this song, I'm going to do this. I've never done that because I've always just like spontaneity. I don't know, there's something about that.
1: And her life has definitely been filled with spontaneity, and it's also been filled with faith. Here she tells the story of how she got that name.
0: I was an adopted child. I sure was. And my mom and dad, they had two boys already, Wesley and Steve, which are my brothers. And they were natural children of my mom and dad, and they wanted a little girl. So my mom called the doctor and said, we want a baby girl. Can you help us out? He said, well, Miss Perry, I can put you on a list. You know, a waiting list is really long. and This was in Jackson, Mississippi. The waiting list is really long, but, but I can put you on a list. She said, okay, well, that's fine. Well, a few days later, they got a call from a doctor, and the doctor said, we got your little girl for you. And it was me, and they named me Faith because they had faith that they were going to get a girl sooner than what the doctor was telling them. I mean, I never even think that I'm adopted. I mean, I, I just... My name is real, and I just think it's a very special story. You know, my mom and dad, that's how they got to that name. They didn't hide it from me. I mean, I have a great family. They're a wonderful family, and I'm very blessed.
1: Blessed indeed, and we love telling adoption stories here on Our American Stories. We spend a month on it, actually, during National Adoption Month, and they'll be coming up at any time. You can also go to ouramericannetwork.org and just click in the term Adoption. And they'll pop up all the great adoption stories. Letting go of your kids is hard enough as it is, but especially your only daughter. Here, Faith tells the story about how her parents dealt with her pursuing her dreams.
0: Especially your baby and it being a girl makes it a little more difficult. But my mom, she didn't come up here with us. She stayed home. She said her goodbyes back there. But she knew how she raised me, and she just got on her knees and said, there's nothing I can't hold her back. When I say that, it almost sounds that it was a bad departure, but it wasn't at all. I mean, my mother's very strong, and she knew how she raised me, and she just had to let me go. And my dad came up here with me with a couple of friends, and as he was leaving Nashville, he had packed up all my stuff. I had my car, which was passed down in the family, and then... And then my friends had a little truck, and it was one of those little bitty trucks where barely two people can fit in the cab. And so on the way back, he had all the boxes that were emptied. He made him this little—he opened up one of the boxes to where it had just three sides to it, and he just made him a little pallet back there in the back of this truck and was sitting in between this box so he had protection from the wind. Well, it was the end of March, so it was still a little cool outside. When he was leaving, I mean, I, I'll never forget it to this day, it, just the look on his face sitting in that box. And he wasn't going to sit there the whole way because it was about a seven-and-a-half-hour drive. And uh, he, said, he said, we love you, and you know, we wish you the best of luck, and if you want to come home, I'll come right back up here and get you.
1: Well, that's the kind of family you always want to have and the kind of parents you want to have. And what a tough call for any parent to watch their little girl, or son for that matter, say, I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to New York to be an actor. It's a tough life. And so many of them even succeed, end up in, in, in a drug problem or who who knows what kind of problem. So or, or an absolutely normal response from a parent there. A few years later, several years later, Faith Hill was on Oprah Winfrey's show, and talk came around to the word faith, and that is spirituality and, and her faith and her Christianity. And Faith Hill, well, she sang her favorite gospel song, on the set of Oprah Show.
0: All oh, to Jesus I surrender, freely give, I will ever love. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily. All oh, to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures, all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me. I surrender
2: all, I surrender all, oh, to Thee my blessing.
1: What a success Faith Hill has had. What a song. What a singer. And let's talk about some of her success in the secular side. Five Grammys, including Best Country Album of the Year for her album Breathe, which was released in 2000. Best Female Country Vocal Performance. Her single, This Kiss, released on March 10, 1998, was the first single from her self-titled album Faith. It soon became a crossover single by reaching number one on the U.S. and Canadian charts. It also reached top 10 in Australia and top 20 in the United Kingdom. It has won the Video of the Year Award at the 1998 Country Music Association Awards. Here's that song.
0: I don't want another heartbreak. I don't need another turn to cry. No, I don't want to learn the hard way. Baby, hello, oh no, goodbye But you got me like a rocket Shooting straight across the sky It's the way you love me It's a feeling like this It's
3: centrifugal motion It's perpetual bliss It's that pivotal moment It's, uh, impossible This kiss, this kiss Unstoppable
1: And this is Lee Habib, Faith Hill's story, born on this day in history in 1967. As always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. This is our American story. is our american stories and we like telling the stories about all kinds of people the good the bad the ugly and the bizarre which brings us to our supreme executive producer and chief proprietor of strategic irrelevance and irreverence jesse edwards with a story that is sure to tantalize all of your senses about an old school hacker take it away
0: Not be completed as dialed. Please check the number and d- 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 dial again.
4: This is the story of a guy known as Captain Crunch. His real name is John Draper. He's legendary in the world of computer programming and hacking. The son of an Air Force engineer who himself joined in 1964. While stationed in Alaska, he helped his fellow servicemen make free phone calls home by devising access to a local telephone switchboard.
0: If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and try again.
4: Now, in case there are any young people listening, back before we all had smartphones, we used landlines. Or phones that were attached to the wall by wiring. If
3: you need
0: help, hang up and then dial your operator.
4: And you even had to pay more money to make long-distance calls, God forbid. After the Air Force, John Draper was trying to test the signal strength of one of his own pirate radio stations when he broadcast the phone number for listeners to call in to report the strength of his signal. Well, he got a response from a group of blind kids who told him about a special whistle that could be found inside boxes of Cap'n Crunch breakfast cereal. Here's John Draper.
5: Well, my claim to fame is, comes out of a Cap'n Crunch whistle box. If you hold up one of the holes like this and blow it, that's 2600 hertz tone. That 2600 hertz tone is what controls the AT&T American telephone system. And it was developed way back in the 50s. Got started from this really, and I learned about the phone company system and the switching tones and I got a Captain Crunch whistle from one of the kids. So what kind of mysterious
4: power did this little whistle have over the national phone system? John Draper
5: gives us a basic demonstration. With this, you want to dial a number, you call up a, 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 like a, a five-five-five-one-two-one-two information number which is free, and, and then you blow it like this. And that just basically is the same thing as hanging up, you're hanging up on a trunk level and you go a little ka sound and then if you want to dial two, you go one, three, and you dial a number. And that was basically how you make free phone calls. That's pretty impressive.
4: In a time when you had to pay for phone calls, this guy figured out a way to hack the system with a whistle that came out of a Captain Crunch box. So next, Draper created the blue box, an electronic device that would recreate tones similar to this whistle. So I
5: built a prototype of a blue box at home. I couldn't believe it. It worked. My parents thought I'd gone stark raving mad. And you can do just about anything with a blue box you can do it as an operator. You can call the other operators, you can call routing codes, you can tap phone lines, you can route calls all over the world by you just knowing what the routing codes are. And you can stack tandems. So
4: once a long-distance call had been initiated, and the phone company heard the 2600 hertz tone, it terminated the call, but only at one end. Now the person at the open end of the line with the special whistle, or the blue box, had all the power of the telephone company operator. They could call anywhere free of charge in the world, or they could tie up phone lines of an entire city by stacking the lines. Here's a demonstration.
5: The number that's ringing at this point doesn't matter. What's important is that this call has gone over a trunk from New York to a distant 4A, which can be reset by 2600. That's the supervision handshake, off hook, on hook. And now it's waiting for new digits, which Ben will supply. That's the sound of Youngstown, Ohio, dumping us into a trunk to Canton and that's the handshake from Canton. Now we're in Youngstown again, which stacks into Canton, and then Canton gives us the handshake.
4: While the implications of this now ancient technology might be lost on some of us now, back then it caught the attention of
5: Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. What happened basically at this point, um, the blind kids got a hold of somebody from Esquire magazine article There was actually this guy, Don Ballinger, who got busted using blue boxes and uh, got real bitter toward the phone company and wanted to blow the whistle on the phone company and let everybody know about it. And uh, the phone freaks found out about it and they contacted Don Ballinger, which is a bad mistake, and they told him about me. And then they wrote this Esquire magazine article called The Secrets of the Little Blue Box, October 1971 issue. And uh, Steve Wozniak got a hold of the magazine and uh, showed it to Jobs. And Steve says, Let's build them and make them and sell them. So that's what they did.
4: In fact, Steve Jobs' first job, or at least his first business, was selling blue boxes, the device that allowed users to get free phone service illegally. Not only that, but you could hack communication centers all over the world with the technology.
2: Here's Steve Jobs. You could you know, call from a, a payphone, uh, go to White Plains, New York, take a satellite to Europe, take a cable to Turkey, uh, come back to Los Angeles. Uh, and you go around the world three or four times and call the payphone next door and shout in the phone, and be about 30 seconds and come out the other end of the, the other phone. So we actually, and these were Ill- illegal, I, I have to add, uh, but in spite of that, we were so fascinated by them that Waz and I actually figured out how to build one. We built the best one in the world, it was the first digital blue box in the world. And uh, we would uh, give them to our friends and use them ourselves. And you know, you, you rapidly run out of people you want to call. But it was, the, it was the magic of the fact that two teenagers could build this box for $100 worth of parts and control hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure in the entire telephone network in the whole world.
4: But it seems like all fun and illegal things like this eventually come to an end.
5: John Draper, Captain Crunch, got busted. I got busted because... Somebody was using uh, Waz's flu box, phone company detected it, and the person had my phone number and abused my privilege and wrote my phone number down and that was how I got busted. Otherwise, I would have been pretty, pretty safe even today because I was very careful. Captain Crunch
4: ended up serving two prison sentences for phone fraud While serving a third prison sentence, Draper set to creating the Easy Rider, the first word processor for the Apple II. While out on work release, he had access to a computer in a small studio, though sometimes he needed to take copies of his work home to prison so he could continue working on it.
0: We're sorry. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial
4: again. But the phone hacking mischief didn't end there for our old friend John Draper here. After prison, he made a fascinating discovery while scanning 800 numbers.
5: Maybe two or three years later, and uh, discovered a very interesting phone number. Uh, it was an 800 number that uh, later I discovered it to be the White House CIA crisis hotline number. And... Uh, there was a way to tap lines back then, so we sit in on the line and listen to it for a while, and it was on an unencrypted link, and uh, somebody said, Olympus, please, and the voice on the other end sounded remarkably like Nixon.
1: People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook.
5: I wrote down Olympus, and two weeks later I went to a party and somebody wanted me to trade. Uh, somebody had this really cool number, I wanted it, and phone freaks like to trade numbers. so. I said, uh, I'll trade you a number. Would you like to have the, the CIA crisis hotline of the White House? And he says, you got what? <laughs> so I gave him the number. But before I even had a chance to give him the number, he'd already stacked two or three, tent, two or three trunks in there calling the number. And he got, uh, got him on the line. And uh, he said, uh, sir, we have a national crisis on our hands here. He says, what's the nature of the crisis? He says, sir, we're out of toilet paper. They hung up. <laughs> First instance of punking uh, the president. Your call cannot be completed as dialed.
4: Please check the number and dial again. And that's phone-freaking-extraordinaire, the one and only Captain Crunch, John Draper. This is Our American
1: Stories. And thank you as always, Jesse. As odd and irreverent as always, John Draper's story, Captain Crunch's story This is Our American Stories, and now one of our favorite weekly segments. It combines two things we love a lot, and one is history, and the other is music. And that brings us to this week in music history, and let's hear it from Jesse.
4: in music history, 1975, fame gave David Bowie his first number one in the United States. The song was written with John Lennon and was less successful in Europe, reaching only number 17 on the UK Singles Chart. It's one of Bowie's four songs to be included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Here's John Lennon talking about writing the song with David Bowie.
5: We finished across the universe and he had, this guitarist had a lick so we sort of wrote this song, you know, it was, it was no big deal. We just sort of, oh. Boom, 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 like that. It wasn't like sitting down to write a song. So we made this lick into a song, is what
2: happened. And that's how it happened, and there it is. Fame,
5: Fame makes a man take things over. Fame, Fame lets him
1: loose, hard to swallow. Fame, Fame you there where things are hollow.
4: And in 1958, after receiving special permission from the U.S. Army, Elvis Presley gave one of his last press conferences before he was shipped out. Elvis, are you surprised that you're as big a success and a lasting success as you are now? Did you think it was going to turn out this well?
0: I didn't know, sir. I, I was hoping, but uh, I just took every day as it come along. I, I didn't anticipate that I was going to do well or I didn't anticipate I was going to die out.
4: He then joined the rest of the 3rd Armored Division of the USS General Randall for a voyage to Germany. And in 1960, former chicken plucker Chubby Checker went to number one on the U.S. singles chart with The Twist. The Twist is the only recording to hit number one on the U.S. charts during two separate chart runs. The song marked a major turning point for adult acceptance of rock and roll music. In 1967, The Doors were banned from The Ed Sullivan Show after Jim Morrison broke his agreement with the show's producers. Morrison said that before the performance, he wouldn't use the words, Girl, we couldn't get much higher from Light My Fire, but he did it anyway.
2: If I was to say to you, Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come on, baby, Light My Fire See, because you can't say higher on networks so they asked if you could say instead girl we can't get much better can you dig that roll me up and smoke me when i die and if anyone don't like it just look up in the eye i didn't come here and i ain't leaving so don't sit around and cry just roll me up and smoke me when I die
4: And in 2006, the then 73-year-old country singer Willie Nelson and four members from his band were charged with drug possession after marijuana and magic mushrooms were found by police in his tour bus near Lafayette, Louisiana. All
0: my friends and tell them there's a party,
4: come on by Now just roll me up and smoke me when I die In 2007, Snoop Dogg was sentenced to three years probation and 160 hours of community service after pleading guilty to carrying a collapsible baton. The rapper was arrested in September of 2006 for the baton that was found inside of his bag at the John Wayne Airport in Orange County, California. In April of 2007, he was given five years of probation and 800 hours of community service after pleading no contest to gun and drug charges in California courts. 1969, Clearance Clearwater Revival scored their only UK number one single with Bad Moon Rising, a US number two hit. In 2010, Rolling Stone magazine ranked it number 364 in its 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list. In the last line of the chorus, There's a Bad Moon on the Rise is sometimes misheard as There's a Bathroom on the Right. John Fogerty occasionally sings the misheard lyric in concert. And in 2015, This Week in Music History, a U.S. District Judge ruled that the original copyright to Happy Birthday was invalid and the song would now be entirely in the public domain copyright was obtained by the Clayton F. Summico from the song's writers, Sister Mildred and Patty Hill, and bought for $15 million in 1988 by Warner Chapel Music, Inc. According to the 1998 Guinness Book of World Records, Happy Birthday to You is one of the most recognized songs in the English language, followed by For He's a Jolly Good Fellow. The song's base lyrics have been translated into 18 languages.
5: You cheating to make you You cry and
4: cry and try to sleep. And born this week in music history, 1923, in Mount Olive, Alabama, was Hank Williams... The American singer, songwriter, and musician is regarded as one of the most important country music artists of all time. Williams recorded 35 singles that would place in the top 10 of the Billboard Country and Western Best Sellers chart, including 11 that ranked number one. During his last years on Earth, Williams' consumption of alcohol, morphine, and painkillers severely compromised his professional life. And this week in music history, 1970, Jimi Hendrix was pronounced dead on arrival at St. Mary Abbott's Hospital in London at the age of 27. Here is Eric Clapton. The night that he
1: died, I was supposed to meet him at the Lyceum to see Sly Stone play. And I brought with me a left-handed Stratocaster. I'd never seen one
4: before and I was going to give it to him. But I couldn't, you know, we never got together. And the next day, whack, he was gone. And I was left with that left-handed Stratocaster. For some days, Hendrix had been in poor health due in part to fatigue caused by overworking, a chronic lack of sleep, and the flu. After a long night of drinking and consuming barbiturates, Hendrix was found unconscious late the following morning and rushed to the hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 12 45 p.m. A
5: red house over yonder. That's where my baby stays.
4: In 1968, Led Zeppelin, recording under the name of The Yardbirds, started recording their debut album at Olympic Studios in London. The album took only 36 hours of studio time to complete at a cost of around $2,400, with most of the tracks being recorded live in studio for very few overdubs. The band had a string of hits throughout the mid-60s, including For Your Love." i
1: give you everything and more, and that's for sure. To your door. And born
4: this week in music history, 1958, Joan Jett, American guitarist, singer, songwriter, and producer, founding member of the Runaways, and with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, scored the 1982 U.S. number no. one and U.K. number no. four single, I Love Rock and Roll. I saw him there by the
0: wreck of She's
4: also known as the godmother of punk. I knew he must have
0: been about 17. He
4: Also born this week in music history, 1949, U.S. singer-songwriter Bruce Springsteen, the Boss. He's sold more than 65 million albums in the U.S. and more than 120 million worldwide. Here's Bruce talking about writing "Born to Run."
1: Initially, I had the riff, boom, bum boom, bum boom, boom. It's a Dwayne Eddy riff, basically. And then I had the chorus, "Tramps like us, baby, we were born to run." But I couldn't get the verses, so I worked a long time on that uh, and on the different, the different uh, sections of the song. Uh, but I didn't have any idea it was going to become the song it was. That took I spent six months writing it and six months recording it, and it sort of developed as it went along into this, into this very big piece of music. That was one of the few records I've ever made Where after we mixed it, I came home, I put it on the next morning and said, that's exactly what I want it to sound like. Uh, That doesn't happen very much.
4: And born this week in music history, 1934, Leonard Cohen, Canadian singer, songwriter, musician, painter, poet, and novelist, he wrote Hallelujah, which was first released on Cohen's studio album Various Positions in 1984, which was covered by John Cale, which formed the basis for a later cover by Jeff Buckley. Cohen died on November 7th in 2016 at the age of 82 in his home in Los Angeles. And that's this week in music history. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
1: This is Our American Stories, and some of our most interesting stories have come from authors writing about big topics, love, faith, entrepreneurship, and in today's case, innovation. We read a piece in the Wall Street Journal entitled The Innovator's Dilemma Hits Higher Ed, and it was by Alana Dunnigan, and we have her here with us now to dive deeper into this topic. And thank you, Alana, for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Lee.
1: And before we begin and talk about higher education, and we talk a lot about education here on this show, you're a research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute. Give us a little background on Professor Christensen and this notion of the innovator's dilemma.
3: Sure. So Professor Christensen is, I think, one of the most preeminent professors at the Harvard Business School and sort of in the business world. And he has focused his research on big question. So why? what makes companies succeed? What causes successful companies to fail? And how do we really create innovation and growth, both at companies and across the economy? And so in in our work at the Institute, we take those ideas and we apply them to the social sector. I lead our research on higher education, but we also look at how you could use innovation to spur better outcomes in healthcare, international development, and the K-12 system.
1: Now, often innovation is fought hard. Obviously, we know of big companies that fight innovation. They either try to block competition through legislation or they try and price fix. They try and create barriers to entry. Uh, Innovators have to be very clever. They have to be very nifty. They have to be nimble. Talk a little bit about who innovators generally are. And, and what some of the forces are that stop innovation?
3: So I think there tend to be two types of innovators. One is the sort of outside the system entrepreneur, you know, coming in to change the system from the outside. We also see folks who are, uh, who work within systems and they sort of have a patience for process, but an impatience for results. And they, they're comfortable working in existing systems and existing companies, but they, they really want to make those companies better. So we look at both of those types of entrepreneurs.
1: And I would, assu- I would assume they're very different. Uh, are they?
3: You know, we don't, we don't actually do a lot of research into the personalities. What we do look at is, is the other thing you mentioned, which is what do they face? And so they face very different types of pushback. So the entrepreneur f- or, or the innovator from the outside faces a system that sort of pushes back against them. But almost equally, the innovator that's working on the inside of a system or the inside of a company, they face pushback too, even if that innovation is is ultimately going to help the company succeed. I think the common thread is that people don't like
1: change. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it. it all comes down to that, doesn't it? I mean, change is hard, and sometimes change means, well, losing some jobs, reevaluating some things, doing things just differently than you did the day
5: before.
3: I think the other part of it, too, is that in general, and this is true for individuals and it's also true for, for companies and colleges and countries, maybe, is that oftentimes what made us successful in the past isn't going to make us successful in the future, But because it's made us successful in the past, we really want to cling to it. And so we're resistant to change for those reasons, not because we're weak or we're bad, but because we're strong and we value the things that have made us that way.
1: You bet. I mean, in the end, uh, change is difficult because in the end we, we know these things to be true, so to speak. That is, we did it before, it worked before. By the way, we do a lot of stories about war, and you find so often that the generals from that last war just don't know how to fight this new war. And they don't want to change because what worked in World War II just didn't work in Vietnam. And what worked in Vietnam didn't quite work in Iraq. And, and so on and so forth. So in, in this respect, you're right. It's not necessarily a weakness, but it, in the end, it's, it's just hard to change for a variety of reasons. Let's talk about education because I think it's something we all touch. Um, and it's a part of our, our lives now much longer than the traditional times it was back in the 50s or 60s or earlier where I think people thought they were done with education after college, let's say, uh, right. why why has this space been as resistant to change as as many of us think it has been, and what might those factors be?
3: Yeah, so I think in some ways it's important to look at how much education has changed, right? So if we go back to the '50s, like you mentioned, most people didn't go to college. A very small percentage of people had college degrees, and actually for most people, education ended after high school. And so I think from that period, college has has undergone a great deal of change, but I think the economy has undergone even more change. Um, So what we need college to do and and the types of jobs that we need higher education to prepare us for, that has evolved much faster than college has. And I also think the the job that we needed college to do for that small percentage of people that were going to school in the 1950s is a very, very different job than we need colleges to do. when we're looking at, you know, potentially needing 60% of Americans to have post high school training and credentials. The, The sort of processes that made college successful for that tiny percent of people in the 50s, is very different than what we what we what we require colleges to do in order to make them successful
1: for sixty percent of the population. That's a massive number. Can you explain that number to us? That is a really big number.
3: Yeah. So that comes out of work by the Lumina Foundation, and they look at you know where jobs are growing, um, where we sort of expect to see demand for different skills and talents as the economy grows into the future. And what you find is that sort of the more education a job field requires, the faster it's growing. And, you know, we we do expect to see job growth for jobs that require only a high school degree. But unfortunately, it's not growing as fast as the population. So the upshot is we need more and more people to be educated. That doesn't mean that everyone needs to get a bachelor's degree or a Ph.D., But it does mean that we need people to have more specialized skills. So whether that's in, you
5: know, welding,
3: specialized manufacturing, et cetera, it doesn't necessarily mean a college degree. But it does mean that we need our higher education system to be training workers in very specialized ways for the jobs that our economy
1: needs. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Alana Dunnegan research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute and author of the Wall Street Journal piece, The Innovator's Dilemma Hits Higher Ed. And we're going to talk about Purdue University and Kaplan University, one a for-profit online and the other a traditional four-year college and a state college. More after these messages. Alana Dunnigan's story here on Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and we continue our conversation with Alana Dunnigan, research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute, and author of the Wall Street Journal piece "The Innovator's Dilemma Hits Higher Education." Just one more point before we then go on to your your really compelling column, and it's it has to do with this skills problem, and and that is the training problem. You know, we're we're coming to a, a time in our in our lives and in the world where folks need this this skills and training, and there's a mismatch. Uh, It turns out that I don't think there are enough people getting the right training for the right jobs. And how do we create more market-centered approaches to this so we can actually... Look, we have Match.com, for goodness sake. We have Uber. We're able to match people in remarkable ways and with remarkable speed. Talk about how folks are starting to think about matching human potential uh, to their training and then, in the end, to future jobs.
3: Yeah, so I do see... You know, from my perch, I look at a lot of innovative things that are happening. And so I do see people who are essentially using the Match.com approach, right? So they're looking at Career Builder or they're looking at these websites where people are posting jobs and those jobs are staying open for a long time. And then they're talking to those employers and they're saying, why can't you hire people? What is it that you need people to know? And they're building programs to train people up to meet that demand. So we are seeing at the margin some of that innovation happening. But for the main higher education system, what I can say is that those skills required are changing quickly, and higher education to do curriculum development, run it through accreditation, get get it approved by the faculty, et cetera, that process can take years. And so by that point, the private sector very often has moved on. Um, So I I also look at things like, for instance, coding boot camps, where the tech industry is putting out new coding languages way faster than, you know, traditional computer science programs can keep up with it. And so these boot camps, because they're sort of free from the shackles of the traditional system, are able to just develop the programs that teach people the skills they need to actually show up and do great work. Whereas, you know, traditional institutions have other strengths, but they're not able to be as nimble as the modern economy often requires.
1: It's so true. You know, I just read a book that the Wall Street Journal had touted. They had had written up a review of a a book called Lincoln's Greatest Case. And it was Abraham Lincoln's case. He argued uh, the case for the railroads versus the steamboats in one of the biggest trials of uh, of the 19th century. And Lincoln was this remarkable lawyer who never went to law school and had apprenticed and learned the basics, took the bar, and that was that. And to what degree do you think the economy is going to start to move into some of that space? Because you're talking about those coding camps, and it's not that much different than an apprenticeship in some ways. Talk about that that area, and then we're going to dig into the uh, Purdue and Kaplan University story.
3: It used to be sort of the very common way that people learned a trade or learned a skill, and now it's a very small percentage of how people learn the skills that they need to do their jobs I think the big question that I have about our system is sort of, do we have the design of the whole system right? So, you know, the old way of thinking about it was you invest a huge amount of money in your college education, but then you're set for your entire career. And now it seems like we, we don't live in that sort of world. You invest in your education, and then 10 years later, the economy's totally changed and you need new skills. And the company, the whole industry you used to work for is now out of business and you yep. need to learn something totally new. So I, so I think it's sort of unfair for us to expect people to dump a huge amount of money into their education in the front end and then keep having to dump huge amounts more all throughout their career. So we need to find a way to make education not just more affordable, but more more modular, something that people can use in smaller chunks so that they're learning what they need to get their first job, and then they're going back and they're learning a little bit more to do what it takes to get their second job and then their third job, and that education is able to change with them as the economy is changing rather than you know going to school and, and thinking that that's going to be the skills and capabilities that you need for the next 50 years. Right? You know, that just doesn't make sense A friend anymore. of mine
1: named John Goodman who uh, had helped pioneer the health savings account, one day he joked to me half seriously that we need an education savings account a continuing account in small buckets, not big buckets, that we use throughout our lives because in the end we're going to have to get educated a lot during our lives and we're spending all of it in one gigantic chunk at a time of our life when we least know what we're going to be doing the rest of our life. And he actually called it just a misallocation of capital. Um, Talk about that.
3: Yeah, I've heard the education system compared to like a currency system that has a ten thousand dollar bill and no smaller denominations. Right, um, and I think there's something really true about that. We need smaller denominations. One of the things that's interesting as as we dig into this research on you know boot camps and some of these more modular skills based programs is that it, they used to be programs that students or workers, individual people would show up and pay for. And now at this point, many of those programs are being paid for, uh, at least in part, by employers because employers are recognizing the value that these programs are creating. And so they're investing in education, too. And I think, you know, there's always been an extent to which we learn on the job. You know, we don't just get a paycheck, hopefully, from our jobs. We're also learning as we do our jobs. And I think employers are recognizing that they need to get more efficient and more thoughtful about how they do that training as well. And I think as they look at the higher education system and they say, okay, this system isn't giving us the jobs uh, or the skills that we need to get the workers that we need, how can we invest in a system that is doing that? And so they're they're willing to be more innovative as well. And they're sort of the, you know, the other side of the, the higher education platform, right? It's not just students. And college, it's also employers.
1: You bet, and I will bet any amount of money that employers are going to go head on into this because the return on their investment is going to be that they're going to get the skilled workforce that they design in in some measure. And they have to be at least willing partners in this. And I think for a long time, they did, frankly, what the NBA did. Hey, let the colleges do the farm team and then we'll pick them. And they were relying, I think, on the old systems to train up the workforce. And it's not working for them in, in perfect ways. Let's talk about the Indiana a miracle. I actually think this is sort of a miracle. Purdue University and Kaplan University have done something very unusual. Talk about it.
3: It's incredibly unusual. I mean, I think it's totally unprecedented in many ways, but I think you have Mitch Daniels leading Purdue University. He's an incredibly innovative guy. This is not the only sort of of out-of-the-box thing that he's done either at Purdue or in his career. Um, But I think Purdue looked around and they said, hey, a third of students are learning online, it seems like maybe the internet is going to be a big deal. And if you dig down into that, you find that it's over half of students at for-profit universities, but only 10% of students at public universities. And they, I think they did a, a deep look at what they could do internally and felt like they were going to be much better off partnering with someone on the outside to build a really competitive program. And so I think they looked over at Kaplan and they said, okay, these guys have 30,000 students. They're, they're a for-profit university and they're a sort of great name in the for-profit world. So the for-profit world gets a lot of flack for good reasons in many cases. Um, but Kaplan has a graduation rate for its full-time students that's double the average for the for-profit world. They have you know, the Kaplan commitment, which I think does a lot of things to make sure they aren't doing any kind of predatory recruiting. So they've they've really been a good actor in the for-profit world. They have strong programs, focused programs. They're reaching the type of students that Purdue is not reaching. So Kaplan is a quarter military students. It's majority students over 30. And it's actually three-quarters women, right? So So think about, like, the working mom who realizes that she needs to do more and get a better job to be able to help her family. So Kaplan had seen this kind of big decline in enrollment, partly because of how, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but how much sort of regulatory pressure there's been on the for-profit world in general. And so I think they were looking at how do we partner with with someone who really has a, a brand that can sustain the business that we've built. And I think Purdue was looking for a partner that really had the capabilities and the reach into a population um, that Purdue didn't have.
1: Well, hold that, um, Alana. Hold that thought. We're going to carry over one more segment because we're just digging in to what I think is the most interesting part of this story. We're talking to Alana Dunnigan, research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute, author of the Wall Street Journal piece "The Innovators Dilemma Hits Higher Ed," and we're talking about what Mitch Daniels has done at Purdue University. Linking it with Kaplan University, nonprofit and for profit merging to serve the people it's supposed to serve and meeting the needs of its customers and its students. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More with Alana Dunigan after these messages. American stories. And this is our final segment in the conversation with Alana Dunnigan. And we're talking about her Wall Street Journal piece, The Innovator's Dilemma Hits Higher Education. And you were just talking a little bit about the Purdue University merger with Kaplan University. So talk about how the faculty, the and what I like to call the old line versus the new line, how did the faculty deal with this idea? This has to, this has to have at least uh, dusted up some 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 kind of criticism or storm.
3: It has. I think it's always hard to know a little bit how the faculty and mass view something. Um, so there's 5,700, I think, faculty members at Purdue, and there's a hundred faculty members in their university senate. And I think fifty two of them were present to discuss uh, this issue. And of that fifty two, forty two of them signed on to a resolution basically saying they felt like they'd been left out of the process, that this would be bad for Purdue's reputation, um, you know, that, that this would sort of take Purdue down this ruinous path. I, I think we should expect that there's a fair amount of resistance in the faculty. I think there are a lot of biases not just in the higher ed world but in you know the broader world against for profit education um people feeling like online education isn't as good as other types of education so those biases are out there faculty hold them and certainly we've seen that resolution come out but we've also seen a lot of faculty be quoted in different articles here and there that they're excited about the possibilities that this has that they feel like they're going to be able to reach a lot more students in not not just in the us but potentially all over the world um and so i think i think there's a mix right of people who feel like this is a bad idea we have to stop this but also people who are really excited to bring what they do to a population that really hasn't had access to to the incredible high quality education that purdue can provide
1: and that's uh, that's uh, worth noting i mean we're we're always going to hear from, from certain folks who are, are going to shout the loudest, but they don't necessarily represent the full swath, again, of 5,700 faculty members. That's quite a quite a number, and I would bet you're right that you go deep in there, and even the ones that are perhaps worried may have nothing to worry about, and they may find those worries are unfounded. Um, that's the interesting part about change. You, you may just find that the reputation of Purdue is enhanced by this move. What happens then to some of the naysayers, Alana?
3: So I've interviewed a a number of college presidents who've implemented online education, and I can tell you I've never talked to anyone where the faculty was for it in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think people also get to a point where they say, okay, you know, we're doing some things in the online program that I really think we should start doing in our traditional program, or, you know, we're able to kind of get this data out of the online program that helps improve our teaching that we were never able to get out of the traditional program. And so I think once the wheels sort of get turning and people start walking down the path, they, they find things about that innovation and that change that they actually really like. It doesn't mean that everything about it is better. You know, There's certainly you know, no replacement for having a face-to-face conversation with someone. Yep. But I think they, they find that their, their reach and their ability to use data to improve their teaching and to improve the process tends to sort of outweigh the, the drawbacks of online education.
1: And talk about what Daniels is really trying to do at Purdue. What do you think this is really all about? I know you've talked about the reach, finding new students, but do you think Mitch is just really trying to say, we've got to do things different ultimately?
3: I think there's some of that. You know, he's done some some innovative work about how can we look at income share agreements and ways to sort of spread out the risk uh, of college and how can colleges actually hold some of that risk and be accountable for the outcomes that they're creating. So he's, he's done some innovative things across the board that I think, you know, give the picture of someone who is really thinking hard about how do we not just be a good college as we currently define college, but how do we really do what the American people are expecting us to do as a college, Um, which can be sort of a different thing than just marching in the same direction we're marching now.
1: And where do you think some of the bias comes against online education? I mean, I know why some folks might not like it, I've been around any number of families who've homeschooled their kids using online education. And I've watched these kids just move grade levels, move fast. The data the educators getting is remarkable because children who would not otherwise would have raised their hands because of peer pressure are happy to ask an online question right there on the spot. And moreover, we're charting each of these kids' progress in real time, and they're not being sorted by grade level. They're sort of being sorted by skill level. And I I have parents who just, they almost can't look back now at the traditional model because they've been so happy and delighted with online education. Talk about that.
3: I think there's two factors. One is just sort of um, a bias that people have where they look back at their own college experience and they feel like that's what college should look like. It was this time where they were personally interacting with people. that It was this transformative experience, and they feel like that's something that they want their kids to have, that they want future generations to have. I think, and so it's just sort of a bias against doing something differently because they know how it worked in the past. There's also the issue that the people who take, because there is this bias against online programs, the people who do them at the college level are generally people who couldn't do that sort of full-time, you know, 18-year-old experience on the grassy lawn. They're not 18 anymore and they're working and they have kids and they're married. Um, and so, yeah, it would be great for them to have that experience, but they don't have the time for it and they can't afford it. Right. And so how do we get something that they actually can do, but because they're working and because they're, you have these other responsibilities, um, their outcomes aren't always as good as the first-time, full-time freshman whose parents are paying for college, which is something that we should expect. But I think people who are against online education have used that fact to sort of say online education, here's sort of the proof in the pudding, online education isn't as good without, without sort of admitting the degree to which the population of students is just incredibly different.
1: It is. And their needs are incredibly different. I think this uh, my my, part of my question about Mitch Daniels was he's a leader. He was a governor and he's a leader of a state. And so he knows that in the end, if he doesn't reach as many people as possible in his state and train them up, this is not good for his state in the end and not good for the productivity, productivity and growth of the state. Uh, And so talk about that as you you think about the 30,000 foot view of why certain leaders are going to ultimately push the envelope in these spaces.
3: Yeah, I've seen some comments uh, you know, in different articles here and there about this that, that are sort of, I think, emphasize a certain perspective that could, that's really illogical, which is sort of like, you know, Purdue is a public institution, so it represents the people of Indiana, so we have to do what's best for Purdue, which is kind of crazy, and it's not the way Mitch Daniels is thinking about right. it. I think Mitch Daniels is thinking, this is a state institution, it has to serve the people of Indiana, not itself, and so I think he's willing to take some risks on behalf of the institution in order to better serve the people of Indiana. He, you know, he's been a governor; he recognizes what it means to serve the public and to have the best interests of the public at heart. But he's also been a business person and a budget guy, and he, I think, recognizes that we need to do that in, a, in an efficient way, in an affordable way in a way that's kind of really going to create results for people. So it's not just about policy and platitudes. I think he's a guy that really knows how to get things done and wants to get things done for the people of his state.
1: I think so, and that's a great way to close things out. Alana Dunnigan, research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute and author of the Wall Street Journal piece, The Innovator's Dilemma Hits Higher Ed. We've been talking about Purdue University and its merger with the for-profit, Kaplan University. Alana, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having
1: me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Purdue's story, Kaplan University's story. More after these messages. American Stories, and most of the time we like to bring you sounds that are pleasing to the ear. Stories about love and life and faith and redemption and forgiveness and American exceptionalism. And by the way, we love doing stories about music, but we also love doing stories about lists. Top 10 whatever. We're going to do a bunch of them here on Our American Stories, and this one, well, Jesse brings us the top 10 annoying sounds in the world.
5: Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world?
1: Like many
4: of the other living beings on Earth, we rely on our senses to function in the world. And even though we humans have the five major senses, there could be as many as 21. Nevertheless, the sense of sound is one of the major ones, and it helps us pick up on vibrations, or oscillating pressure waves traveling through the medium, usually the air, and then converting them into something different, called sound. This sense lets us listen to music, have verbal conversations, or even hear an incoming threat, like a lion running through the underbrush towards us. The way these vibrations are turned into actual sound inside of our heads is quite amazing to say the least. And so is the reason for why we find some of them pleasurable, while others are truly annoying. At number 10, let's start off this list with a particularly nasty one. Fingernails dragging on a chalkboard. Among the many other sounds that people find most annoying, scratching one's fingernails on a piece of chalkboard is one of the worst. But why? Why do we find this particular sound so hard to bear? This question has apparently boggled some scientists' minds as well. Back in 2011, they made a study on it. First off, it turns out that the sound produced by nails on a chalkboard falls between the band of mid-range frequencies, somewhere between two and 5,000 Hz. This frequency is actually enhanced by the human ear because of its shape. Number 9 of the most annoying sounds on the planet. Have you ever been around people who are chewing their food so loudly that you felt the urge to punch them? Ouch. If you haven't then call yourself lucky. We're talking from experience here. And you've probably heard it too, but didn't notice. If that's the case, then you're part of the fortunate few who are not suffering from a mild form of misophonia. The mild reactions people have when they're exposed to these sounds are anxiety, disgust, feeling uncomfortable, and the urge to get away. But if the reactions are more severe, like with me, they can experience rage, anger, deep hatred, panic, a strong desire to kill that person, or even suicidal thoughts. Well, maybe I'm not that bad. What actually causes it, however, is still largely a mystery. But doctors believe it's part physical and part mental. It usually kicks in around the age of 9 to 13 and is more common in girls. But whether misophonia is an actual disorder or just a side effect of anxiety or OCD is still debated. In at number 8 for the most annoying sounds in the world, earworms. Have you ever found yourself singing the same tune in your head over and over like a broken record? Of course you have. Everyone has. And what's worse is that it's not even the whole song. It's just a small part of an endless repeating loop, right? These annoying little buggers are one as known as earworms and have been plaguing humanity for a very long time. The reasons for earworms are fairly complex, but do involve a combination of things like stress, altered emotional states, the mind-wandering, and word-memory association. That's why you start singing Bohemian Rhapsody in your head the moment you hear someone say the word mama. What's interesting about these earworms is that 90% of people experience them at least once a week, while a quarter of the population has it happen several times a day. And they oftentimes start when we're doing repetitive tasks which don't need much of our attention. By the way, Bohemian Rhapsody is totally stuck in your head right now, isn't it? (laughs) Choruses make great earworms since they're usually what we remember from a song, and because we don't know the rest of it, we tend to repeat the chorus over and over and over again, trying to find an eventual end that doesn't really exist in our memory. Earworms can also be characterized as an involuntary auditory imagination to some degree. (laughs) And in at number seven of the most annoying sounds in the world, there is a reason there almost always seems to be a baby crying on an airplane every time you're on one or in one. It's because you're hardwired to hear them, no matter what. All of us are. And as it turns out, the sound of a baby crying captures our attention more so than any other sound in the world. In one study, it was revealed that the sound of a crying baby is immediately followed by an intense reaction in our brains, especially in the regions in charge of emotional processing, speech, the fight-or-flight response, as well as the reward centers for various senses. The reaction to this particular sound is so fast that the brain doesn't even have time to fully recognize it for what it is before it marks it as highly important. And what's even more interesting is the fact that immediately after hearing it, people get a boost in overall physical performance and reflexes, which might more easily facilitate caregiving behavior. So, when you're stuck on an airplane with a crying baby, you're involuntarily flung into alert mode. And since you're not the parent and you can't do anything about the crying, you become frustrated and irritated as a result. And in at number six of the most annoying sounds on the planet, the Vuvuzela. Coming into existence sometime around 1910, the Vuvuzela is the creation of Isaiah Shembe, the self-proclaimed prophet and founder of the Nazareth Baptist Church in South Africa. The instrument was originally made out of cane wood and later metal, and used as a religious instrument played in harmony alongside African drums during church ceremonies. But as the numbers of the church followers grew, the Vuvuzela got around enough that by the 1980s it appeared during soccer matches in South Africa. By the 1990s, mass production of plastic Vuvuzelas flooded into the South American market to the point where they became an integral part of the choreography and general atmosphere of the sport in the country. Then, during the 2010 FIFA World Cup held in South Africa, the Vuvuzela spread like wildfire all around the globe. Besides being so loud that some spectators ended up suffering from temporary hearing loss. The sound made by so many vuvuzelas, all played at different times and varying frequencies, is reminiscent of an unimaginably large swarm of angry wasps. In at number five on the most annoying sounds in the world is... Vomiting. (laughs) Vomiting. Are you one of those people who starts feeling sick when you see someone else getting sick? Or for that matter, when you hear someone heaving or even when just talking about it? Well, if that's the case, then we have some good news and some bad news for you. Let's start with the bad news first. (laughs) There simply isn't anything you can do about it, period. Your brain is made this way and there's nothing you can do to change it. But here comes the good part. You are an empathetic person. You are what some people call a good friend or partner your brain has developed some mirror neurons which make you copy what others are doing or feeling around you. And because of these mirror neurons... Say that ten times fast. Believe it or not, this annoying thing of feeling sick when others around you are too might just save your life one day. Back in prehistoric times when people were living in tribes, if one or more of them were throwing up, it probably meant that they ate spoiled food or something poisoned. And it was quite possible that all of them did. So sympathy vomit might actually be a preemptive measure for expelling any potential poison even before its effects begin to kick in. At number four of the most annoying sounds in the world is people arguing. And the difference here is on where you, the observer, are situated in regards to the argument. If you're on your couch at home watching TV, it's quite entertaining to look at others fighting over whatever subject. It probably even makes you feel a tiny bit better about yourself while hiding behind the anonymity of the TV. But if you're in the kitchen and your roommates start arguing about whose turn it is to do the dishes or who left the toilet seat up, it's quite <laughs> uncomfortable being there in the same room with them.
2: You know, what am I supposed to do? The
4: dishes all day clean for you? Yeah, that's right. In at number three of the most annoying sounds in the world... Oh, hey, we just landed at the airport. ...is telephone chatter. What? Back in 1880, Mark Twain wrote an essay called A Telephonic <laughs> Conversation. This was just four years after Alexander Graham Bell presented his invention for the world to see and listen to. Who's that? <laughs> oh, I don't know. In this essay, Twain satirizes how one such conversation sounds to a third party who is only able to hear half of the conversation. Oh, I was thinking about getting some snacks or something. What drove him to write the essay in the first place is the reason so many of us find it annoying even to this day. Oh, yeah. How's she doing? As it turns out, our brains have the habit of anticipating what's going to happen. So even if we're aware of it or not, when we listen to someone talk, we're not actually absorbing that information, per se, or preparing our answer. Oh, well, tell her I said hi. Rather, we're trying to figure out what the person wants to say next. It's involuntary. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I really like that. And all of us do it. Mm-hmm. But when speech becomes unpredictable swordfish with random words thrown in tomato, then our brains have a hard time anticipating Hammer. No, no, I don't think we'll be there till Thursday. What? And this is something that drives us hand sanitizer crazy. Oh, I'll stop by the store and get you some extra dish soap. This is the reason we find one-sided conversations on the phone so annoying. We can't predict what the person talking is going to say next. Okay. In at number two of the most annoying sounds in the world, (sniffs) bodily noises these sounds can all be classified as disgusting or at least annoying by pretty much anyone. For instance, people living in the UK found bodily noises more annoying and disgusting than those living in South Africa, probably because of cultural differences. Likewise, older people also found them more disgusting, hinting at the idea that they were more accustomed to not hearing these sounds in public as often. Or it could mean that their sex drive is somewhat slowed down which could also be the cause. Scientists are still debating the issue. Another reason could be that these sounds represent bodily secretions and excretions. And these things are often associated with pathogens and disease and might explain why people tend to feel disgust or even take evasive action when they hear them and in and number one on the most annoying sounds in the world aside from my voice the infamous brown note if you're hearing this right now, we hope you're sitting on the toilet, listening on your phone, just as a precaution. This is a particular low sound frequency somewhere in between 5 to 9 hertz, which is below what a human can actually hear. But if the sound is loud enough, it can be felt in the body as a vibration. And as the name suggests, this particular frequency is said to make people poop their pants. That would be kind of annoying, right? The whole story behind the brown note came with the Republic XF-84H Thunder Screech airplane in 1955. This was an experimental aircraft powered by a turbine engine and a supersonic propeller, but since the propeller was giving out some 900 sonic boom blasts every minute, even when idling on the tarmac, it reportedly caused nausea, severe headaches, and even instant bowel movements for people who were standing around the plane. The project was discontinued as some crew members were seriously injured by shockwaves. The thunder screech was quite possibly the loudest airplane ever built, with people hearing it from some 25 miles away. Anyway, Hearing of the possible nasty effects it had, countless experiments with low frequencies were performed over the years, but with no brown results reported. Even NASA looked into it as they feared that astronauts would possibly need a change of suits after liftoff into space. But the urban myth behind the brown note was born. But if it actually does exist, if someone decides to commercialize it somehow, can you imagine what a kid could do with something like that in school or church on Sunday? (laughs) The possibilities are endless. And that, my friends, is the top 10 most annoying sounds in the world. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.